Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. Where your host for this week is me, Farmers Guardian news editor Olivia Midgley. And me, Farmers Guardian editor Ben Briggs. We'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe, whether that's via Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Raycast, to ensure that you stay up to date with all the latest episodes. Up on the show this week, and we come to the end of our series on preparing for Brexit with a look at the horticulture sector. It'll come as no surprise that recruitment and securing a reliable future workforce is at the top of the agenda, but will Brexit make it even more difficult to recruit staff? We also ask if the British workers who were deployed to farms this year have stuck it out. But first, and with horticulture growers finally securing a ballot on the future of the AHDB levy after years of campaigning, we've been speaking to one of the farmers who made it happen. AHDB says that without it, growers could lose out on access to world-leading research and development, but petitioners like John Bradley believe the levy has become outdated. Our reporter Alex Black has been finding out more. The Country Land and Business Association is the only organisation solely dedicated to the protection of land and property rights and promoting the interests of the wider rural economy. We help our members work in the best interests of the land, wildlife and the environment. Join today at www.cla.org.uk. The future of AHDB horticulture could be under threat. Last week, three growers from Lincolnshire sent a formal request for a ballot from levy payers. John Bratley was one of those growers. John, do you want to tell me first of all a little bit about your business? Uh, well, we're, we're a vegetable growing business with potatoes. We're intensive. We don't have a lot of land, but we rent a lot in. Uh, we're growing about 2,000 acres or so of vegetables and potatoes. We also have a, a, a glasshouse enterprise, which is a different company. And we raise vegetable plants for ourselves, but primarily for customers in Lincolnshire. And you've been involved in getting this formal ballot on AHDB horticulture. Why do you think that's necessary? Yes, well, uh, we were very disappointed, uh, frustrated, in fact, with the review that DEFRA put out, uh, which was, it took 10 years before they approached the problem, and, and we're paying a lot of money for that. Um, that review was appalling. Um, I find it unbelievable that uh, people like AHDB are acting on the results of it. The result was... To be fair, to put in context, it covered all sectors, the review from DEFRA. It was um, half a percent came back, which is one person in 200 who gave an opinion. And on that level, one person in 200, they formed or are forming a, a policy for the next five years, which I find incredulous. How can intelligent people do that? Um, there's, there's no, they've got no idea what the public, what the payers, levy payers think. No matter who they've got, it's one in 200. It's, it's, it's just not on. And that, that upset us very much, being, being upset with the fact we're paying the levy anyway. So that drove us to uh, test, the, test the market, test the water, because the growers, we're not out of touch with growers. And we've all got different businesses, the three of us. And we felt there's got to be uh, a common thread somewhere. And the, our review... Uh, our own ballot, rather, which meant sending letters to each household who paid when we could find them, uh, 
90 odd percent want to be out and uh, and therefore that that gave us the confidence to approach DEFRA for a, an official review. Do you feel that what AHTB does is not relevant for your business? Well, uh, well in as much as that uh, even in, through their own uh, admittance just recently at some meetings they've said Horticulture is very difficult for them. There's 300 different crops, not like cereals or milk or beef or whatever. It's, it's simplistic, that is, for farming. Horticulture is an impossibility. Um, and they've managed to cog on for the last 10 or 12 years without anybody questioning them. They have. They're, they're not accountable to anybody. Uh, the governance that set AHD up in the first instance was heavily flawed because there's no traceability accountability and now that they're having to look at this it's um i think they don't know what to do with themselves i mean there's no doubt there's a lot of good people working at hdb but they have and are badly managed and badly led uh, and that's because no one has to think about what they really do seriously because they're not accountable in ahdb's response to this ballot one of the things they've highlighted is how much research and development they do why isn't that valuable? Because the free market offers more than enough research and development in every, in all sorts of ways that anybody who's in business has the ability to source that. And I might add, little or no money. We're paying twice. The, 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 the industry itself, not just horticulture, but agriculture as well, has uh, a number of outlets where there are very capable, very capable uh, institutions, whereas universities centres of excellence, learning, whatever, and has been for, for decades. Uh, and we're good at that as a country. But we don't need to pay twice. And paying a, what is essentially a tax, this the levy, for somebody else to do your work for you is an unnecessary cost. And that's why we felt... And, and of course, I might add that while we've been paying this levy, we also pay uh, people to do that research for us separately. We pay consultants... We pay researchers. I mean, it costs me more, far more money a year on outside efforts that I pay for uh, than I pay to AHDB because I pay for something that is specific to my business, not the top-down approach, the global approach that AHDB have, have happened to have operated for years. And now they're admitting it's difficult. Well, of course it's difficult. It's an impossibility. But nobody's questioned it. One of the issues you've raised is how varied the horticulture sector is. Just give us some idea of how irrelevant the research for, for example, soft fruit would be to a grower like yourself that's growing vegetables. Well, I know nothing about soft fruit, and I do believe, from what I've been told in the last two years, that soft fruit is a success story in this country. And no doubt, AHDB have had an input into that as well as others. And therefore, but it's soft fruit is a small part of horticulture. And there might be 50 or 100 people doing soft fruit out of 1,400. And I would be wrong to say it's not success. But that's the typical, that's the problem that they face. There's 300 crops. Where do they put the efforts and how, how important is it uh, to us to see nothing back and yet paying the money for it? I'm told that the money we pay in does not go to soft fruit. But I, I, it goes to the paying all the overheads on the staff and the pensions and the wages. So indirectly, whether they like it or I'm paying for it. And I don't need to do that. In fact, I don't need to. I can't afford to and I don't want to. 
And that's the same frame of mind that a lot of people in horticulture have got. And I can say that with confidence because that's, that follows through from the returns we've already got from our own ballot. It's impossible to keep every happy. If you offered me the job of running horticulture, I wouldn't take it at any money because it's an impossible task. Are you hoping to have the same success with the potato sector and run a ballot on that as well? We've been given the company payers of levy of potatoes, not individuals, from AHDB. And as soon as we've got over the hurdle of eligibility of the request we've got for horticulture, as long as they're eligible, and they have to be 67, once we've got over that hurdle, then, then it's out of our hands and we shall immediately go on to sending out requests to potato growers. We have, we've got the limited companies, as I say, and we've got uh, a, a list of people who have returned our ballot initially. We shall follow that through. Moving away a little bit from AHDB, what do you see as the major challenges and opportunities for the horticulture sector and your own business over the next few years? Well, people who are positive will all see opportunities, and we do, but it's a very difficult task we've got on our hands. The marketplace is controlled by the multiples, They've spent vast sums of money in every town in the, in the country and they control what happens. They don't appear to control, but behind the scenes they do. You either, you either meet their demands on price and specification or you don't have any business. So it's a fairly simplistic equation uh, and people, uh, people want to eat and if they want to eat British, things will have to change very quickly because my customer base on my plant raising is getting narrower and narrower and some people are giving up they've given i've got some companies giving up this year and over the years it's been a there soon won't be a choice there won't be enough growers to do what you want to do and then multiples will be dependent on one or two suppliers and that's dangerous for their point of view and it's dangerous for the grower because he's got no room to maneuver and no room to argue it, it, food will be always wanted and we shall hopefully produce it but we cannot produce it and make sense of our investment and, and depreciation levels uh, at the current prices. Excellent. And you've got to bear in mind when I say that, that the, the subsidies that farmers have had over the last 30 years have covered all sorts of problems in the industry, which soon will come to a head. But we've had to deal with that without the subsidies. And that's what given us, uh, what's rationalised the agricultural industry down to down to 1,000 some odd growers. With the changes in agricultural policy that are coming over the next few years and the reduction of subsidies, obviously horticulture doesn't get the same subsidies as uh, the rest of agriculture does. What impact is that going to have on you? It, it, all, all subsidies have done in the long term has increased the value of, of land, increased rental values, increased the values of all inputs. Most inputs onto, into agriculture are, are supplied ultimately by international companies that supply the same in any country. That's fertilisers, chemicals, sprays, equipment. And so, uh, and they charge uh, what the market will stand. And we are paying, horticulture has been paying the agricultural rate because agriculture has been subsidised, so they, they've been charged whatever, and we've paid that premium without having the subsidy. So we've been denied that free, that sort of that pleasure, that... that uh, subsidy regardless and so as soon as that comes off we're all on a level playing field and the market will only stand so much and we 
horticulture indirectly could be beneficiaries in that. You're still ploughing on, and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. Thanks to Alex and to John. We'll be keeping an eye on the balloting process and, of course, looking at what the resulting vote means on the pages of FG and at fginsight.com. Now, John touched on it there, but Brexit is edging ever closer and businesses are getting ready. Here's Jess Frederberg. Hi, folks. So we're on to the last in our mini-series looking at how different farming sectors are gearing up for life outside the EU come December the 31st. This week, we're focusing on horticulture and we're revisiting a grower we spoke to at the beginning of lockdown. With COVID causing labour shortages and logistical problems for his business, how does he now view Brexit? Is this a glimpse possibly into what might happen? Or are there, in fact, opportunities to be had? Let's find out what he thinks. Right, my name's Mark Bowyer. I'm Farm Operations Manager for Wilmore Limited. Uh, my role primarily looks after businesses inside the UK, growing uh, fresh herbs and brassicas uh, in Berkshire and Surrey, growing chilies indoors in, uh, in Berkshire, and also an involvement in an asparagus growing business in Suffolk. Overall, Wilmore are importers of specialist fruit and veg, supplying all of the major retailers. So, Mark, I know we were speaking a few months ago, right at the beginning of lockdown, when things really started to take hold. And at the time, I know that one of your, your asparagus growers was trialling employing Brits and even a circus troupe. I just wondered, you know, how how has that gone or how, how did it go? And has it impacted your view at all on what life might be like outside the EU, you know, come December in terms of access to labour and how easy that might be? Bits of the UK employment went very well. Other bits of it were very average. We had massive interest, um, but... There was also, uh, in some cases, very difficult to get commitment because the because of the requirement of the work and uh, the nature of the hours. It's a very difficult crop in terms of planning for labour. It's very much a, a one day at a time or two days at a time, and because of that, we you know it, it revolved a lot around phone calls the night before to try and rally round enough people to make sure that you'd got enough people for the following day and the UK way of life in general doesn't work around that particularly well. We had a lot of students that were interested we had a few challenges around um, some of the UK employment legislation um, you know limitations on what young people can do we coped with all of them, but it, it didn't make life easy. And I think in some cases we made life difficult for ourselves. By the time we moved on into the main herb crops, actually, you know, the situation started to improve. Although we were still technically locked down, uh, 
the migrant workforce were prepared to travel. Uh, we set up a quarantine unit. We brought in initially all the people that we, we planned to be able to bring in. We quarantined them. We set up our bubbles and operations started to go well. The bigger challenge was during the season when we needed to replace those people. So you always get a number of people that want to leave for various different reasons. You know, a lot of people started here in March and actually by the time they get to June, having not seen family and friends back in Eastern Europe, they're very keen to to try and get a week to go home. Our challenge was if they go home, we can't let them back in the bubble. Because we're full, we've no longer got a quarantine unit. So it's put a lot of pressure on them as well towards how we how we cope and credit where credit is due our guys and girls have really worked hard to try and stay with us as long as they possibly have as, as long as they possibly can and we've still got two-thirds of them with us we we start shutting down really over the next uh, the next six-week period and did many did many of the the Brits that you were employing, um, and particularly that circus uh, circus troupe, did they stick with you? Did they stay? The the circus troupe were actually Romanians. Um, they at the end of asparagus season they moved on, and I believe they went and worked for another farm for a short period of time, whilst they were trying to work out at what point they could go back into performing. Um, so they they were a little bit different. A lot of the, the Brits um, are not able to move like the migrant workforce. You know, it's not sensible to turn around and say, you know, we've we've got continuing work for you, but it's 130 miles away. Mm, okay. So how how has this whole sort of experience of managing those labour problems? How has that affected your view, or has it affected your view of what might happen? once the the Brexit transition period ends in December, you know, in, in terms of, of your access to, to labour afterwards? I think it's brought home to many more people how bad it might be. The migrant workforce that are with us in general, a lot of them want to return. They can apply for a status whereby they can return. Um, and I think that that will take place. But that in the best scenarios, is likely to only be 60 to 70% of the requirement for next year. It's then a question of where are the rest of the people going to come from. Now, there'll be a number of people that have eligibility to come and work here anyway, through what they've done in the past, be it last year, the year before, um, and they will have managed that. Part of our thought at the moment is we need to be starting to recruit earlier, Um, And another bit of it really is around the fact that we don't know what's going to happen to the UK economy. If there are local people that want to work and are going to be committed to it because there is nothing else, then we have no problem with with working with, with mixed teams. And that may be where we have to go. What it is resulting in at the moment is we're planning next year's labour probably four months earlier than we would normally even dream about trying to start. What does this mean for you guys as well? Does it mean a lot of extra costs too in terms, you know, in, in terms of organising all of that? There's massive extra cost and I think there's also going to be an increased competition for the labour that is, that is available to come. 
So I think, you know, it will be right down to what facilities are you going to offer? What pay rates are you going to offer? The other one that worries me a little bit is that the opportunity opportunity for the people traffickers could just build. If there is a shortage of, of workers, they will try and monopolise it and make something out of it. So I think the requirement for, for the checks that we have in place... Um, and the controls that we have to make sure that everything we do is ethical and safe will become much more because I think, like anything, when you get into these sort of situations, someone will try and make the most out of it um, because they will just see it as an opportunity to earn more money. I suppose at the moment as well, the context is we have, I think I read this morning, we've had 7,000 people coming across the channel recently you know the really very vulnerable people so there's a lot of people there to exploit aren't there unfortunately yes and i think there will be a number of people out there that will just see that as an opportunity what about the logistical side of things mark because I, I know you know will more more generally imports fruit and vegetables doesn't it and I, I know having spoken to you before there were quite a lot of logistical problems during, you know, right at the beginning of, of lockdown in terms of those transport links. And, of course, we saw a lot of lorries backed up across the continent as everything kind of ground to a halt. Do you think there's any... Are there any parallels there in terms of the logistical problems that came about from COVID, you know, in terms of what might happen, um, especially if we have, like, a no deal? Well, yes, obviously there will be. Um, so if we, we go back to our experiences at the beginning of lockdown, um, Wilmore, we, uh, as a business, we import from all around the globe. I think the, you know, the customs checks are always going to be a problem. Um, and that will slow down trucking in particular. I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's unlikely that due to cost, I think it's unlikely that air freight uh, for, for fresh produce will change dramatically. But I do think we'll, we'll, we, we could very easily see delays at the ports with shipping containers that have to be cleared. Um, and the same again with, with trucks coming across the channel. And the, the talk across southern Europe for some time has been very much, or in the haulage world from what I understand, has been very much along the lines of how many people want to run their vehicles into the UK after Brexit. They're looking at, you know, what happens, how many, how long are they going to be delayed, um, and and what's what's how's that going to affect their business, and particularly in a lot of cases they can travel to other places in Europe without these restrictions. So some of the hauliers, from what I've heard of, said, well, they'll just drop the UK as one of their options as to how or where they will deliver product to. I was going to say those hauliers that come from the continent into the UK obviously also take exports back out of the UK, don't they? Yeah, in general, yes. They, you know, th- th- so not only are they looking at the fact that they've got to customs clear on the way in, potentially they're going to get delayed on the way out as well. Do you think any of that presents opportunities at all for the horticulture sector in terms of the domestic market? I'm sure it does. If we see a 10% rise in the cost of haulage, which you know is not out of this question at all, if we can start to get that shift in prices, then I see no reason why 
um, there will be some bigger opportunities inside the country. Um, we, we may see it also from the grounds that a lot of the Europeans are seeing the UK as a more difficult market to supply potentially after Brexit. And if that is the case, then, you know, they're either not going to grow or they're developing other markets. And, I, you know, you hear a lot of, lot of stories about a lot of other material that's, that could have come here that is now ending up in Germany, in France, uh, in Poland or in other, other parts of Eastern Europe. If they find alternative markets, then we will have to grow some of this stuff for ourselves. So given, given all of that then, Mark, I mean, how, how are you as, uh, you know, as, as manager, like operations manager, how are you preparing the business for, um, you know, for life properly outside the EU come, come the 31st December? Is there anything you're able to do, you know, or, or what, what are you actually doing? In terms of our, the UK growing, changing what we grow inherently um, between, you know, to, to try and grow a temperate crop during the middle of the winter in the UK is going to be very difficult or it isn't going to work. We can, we can grow some equivalents, particularly in brassicas. We've increased our brassica area slightly, um, purely on the back of we don't know what's going to happen. And we've seen growth in the last four years. I wouldn't have done it if it was in a declining sector. Um, but it's not making a significant amount of money to be able to improve it. We are looking at mechanisation. Um, you know, the going back to the access of, of labour or access to labour, we're, we're going to struggle. We know that it's going to become uh, a little bit more of a competitive marketplace for the people that you want. And that may just drive costs further which makes mechanisation again even more attractive so I think we're going to see that the mechanisation of some of the lines that we do um, will have to be driven forward just to try and account for, for both the supply part and the labour part If you could, if you, could um, you know get the ear of number 10 as it were right now uh, what would you be saying in terms of what do you know, horticulture, um, you know, what do growers need right now in terms of uh, information and clarity on everything? I think clarity about the number of workers that are going to be able to come into the country and a sensible limit. You know, there's, there's a lot, lot said about how many people we need. There's also an awful lot said about uh, how few they're currently planning on allowing in i think we need clarification on that is i think you know if if we're going to be expected that you know to use some of the local labor force then i think that needs to be acknowledged that this is likely to be where it is the supply bit you know the, sh the shelves won't be empty Whatever anybody says, very unlikely that the shelves will be empty. Product will come from somewhere. What the cost will be and who's footing the bill for the increase may be a bit different. But I don't believe that there won't be enough food on the shelf. Thanks to Jez for that report and to Mark for giving us another glimpse into his operation. Don't forget you can find out more news, views and analysis on our Brexit hub. Just head to fginsight.com forward slash Brexit. 
Well, that's it for this week, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with more. But don't forget to subscribe via all your favourite podcast platforms to keep notified of all the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. From us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well, and goodbye for now. Thank you.